If you really lived on the edge, what would it be like if you produced television shows of all kinds, all kinds of content, and fought to include more diverse voices in entertainment? And what do you know about change, innovation, risk, failure, and the sweet smell of success? Oh, and let's add somebody who knows a lot about the music business and radio and always tilts toward the future. Yeah, you're in the right place. Welcome to our Wednesday live event on the Clubhouse app, Innovation in Audio. My name is Lloyd Ford. I'm with Rainmaker Pathway Consulting Works. While a lot of our work is focused on media, RPC, Rainmaker Pathway, is uh, somewhat, is a group that specializes in developing strategic paths to grow revenue and value for a lot of different kinds of companies. That strategic value is needed in a wide variety of businesses today more than ever. We do this by helping clients focus on their brands uh, and separate those brands from others so that their special can be clearly seen. We are the perfect strategic partner for clients who want to increase their market share. If you know somebody who needs help today, have them reach out, F-O-R-D at BrainMakerPathway.com. This live event is part of a podcast series called the Encouragers Innovation and Audio Podcast and will become available within about an hour, if not before, uh, the end of this live event, wherever you get your podcast. Our thanks, by the way, goes to Joe Kelly for producing our podcast events at JustJoeProductions.com for creating audio footprint and distributing them. Pay close attention to this. Our entire reason for launching Innovation in Audio is to showcase proven innovation in a wide variety of perspectives. Today, we are going to visit with Evan Shapiro, who's producer, professor, pundit, board chair of the Ghetto Film School, Emmy and uh, Peabody winner. Uh, he's won these awards. He's a lecturer for companies and governments on Generation Y and Generation X. And listen up. We're also going to be joined, we hope, he's not arrived yet, but we hope he'll be here any minute, Mike Burrell, who is with Columbia Records as a national radio consultant. Before we get started with our current guest, we do have this to share with you, a quick preview of what is coming next week on Innovation and Audio. Graham Lau is the research scientist at Blue Marble Space Institute of Science in Seattle, Washington, and he'll be joining us next week. If everybody could go on mute for just a second, we'll be ready for you in just a minute. See our full upcoming guest calendar on our free blog section at RainmakerPathway.com. That's also where you're going to find free encouragement for on-air and promotions with our more than live and local guest series. And of course, uh, for local radio sellers, you get even more encouragement with our encouraging sales success series, as well as free resources for anyone who is in audio today. By the way, we don't lock away anything on our website the way some consultants do. So go to RainmakerPathway.com anytime and see what you can get for free from our team. Let's go straight to talking to our guest right now today. First, I get to tell you about our first guest, Evan Shapiro. Listen, this guy is a professor at NYU Stern School of Business and 
the Fordham Gabelli, I hope I'm saying that right, School of Business. And he is a board chair of One Day Immersion, Inc. and a board member at American Theater Wing, Inc. He's also the board chair emeritus for the Ghetto Film School. These are, are really just some of the things that Evan is involved with today. Evan Shapiro has worked in media, entertainment, and education, creating distinctive content, building iconic brands, teaching thousands of students and young executives, leading a charge for diversity and inclusion in media, and of course, pushing for change in the industry as an executive producer, board member, professor, writer, and thought leader. His work has resulted in awards, critical acclaim, and most importantly, a strong and diverse community of collaborators across the spectrum of disciplines in the for-profit and nonprofit spheres. But the thing that has placed him on this live event right now is that his work is essentially, by his own words, involved in leading change. Evan, welcome to the Encouragers Innovation and Audio. How are you, sir? Good. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you for being here. Listen, did, uh, what did I miss in the introduction? You are so busy. Uh, <laughs> I, I got to know, you know, uh, I, I wonder if you if you see it that way or if you just are so used to juggling all these projects and jobs in your life, it's just normal for you. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing is, you know, since I moved to New York City, I've always tried to have multiple channels to my creative output. And um, in the last couple of years, it's been very gratifying to have the producer channel realized, the professor channel realized, and the, the you know, now with these maps that I've done, the pundit channel kind of really explode. Um, so... I don't see it as any different. I mean, when I was running IFC and Sunday's channel, I had a very busy day every day. The day isn't any more or less busy now. It's just adapted for the current dashboard. You know, the, the world is a very different world than 2008. And it's, I, I, I very much enjoy kind of going with the flow of the creative ecosystem and the creative economy nice. that, that, that just allows me to just continue to do different things every day. All right. So listen, what is it, what is it about you, about your personality uh, that attracts you to being someone who encourages and leads change? I, I mean, that's really hard. The, 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 the basic thing that I can say to you is it's who I am. I mean, I, I was, mm -hmm. I'm a child of divorce. I'm a, one of the first latchkey kids. and one of the first generation of Sesame Street viewers. So, hmm. you know, Sesame Street launches in, I don't know, the, the late 60s. And I was one of the first viewers of that. And so I, you know, as Gen X, Gen X has this weird kind of like in-between place. So the, yes. the, the founders of Google are all Gen Xers, but everybody else is Gen Z, Gen Yers or Gen Zers. I just, I've always been driven to this moment of like, I'm going to, I'm going to say whatever the conventional wisdom says, I'm going to say, fuck you. And that's just where generation X has always kind of landed. I right. think in the media ecosystem, I've become myself and I emulate Scott Galloway to a certain extent uh, and, and Kara Swisher. I've really tried to kind of 
fill in that void of like, wait, wait a second, just like, can, have we thought this through? Because it just doesn't seem all the way thought through. And most of my bosses in the media ecosystem were boomers, and I consistently was the guy who kept saying, "Hey, wait a second, could I just float, throw a red flag here?" And then consistently inside the major media conglomerate ecosystem, I was told, "No, you can't throw a red red flag here because we have we've decided this. This is the way it's going to be." And I think there's I think there's a lot of us in Gen X, and and I think Gen Y and Gen Z is following through with this. But I think there's a lot of us in, in my generation who are just like, ah, it just sounds like bullshit to me. So I've, I've, I've filled that. I have consistently by accident and then on purpose filled that slot, I think. Well, and you're talking to a Gen Xer, so I feel you. I feel your pain. <laughs> so, so listen, listen, you have been really successful doing what you just talked about. For over eight years, you were the president of IFC and the Sundance Channel. How much is involved in guiding entities like these? Because I would imagine there is uh, some red tape. I mean, I look. I I loved my time there. I actually, as as far as my professional career goes, when I look at the time that I've worked for corporations, that's probably my favorite eight years. Josh mm -hmm. Sapan and everybody who ran that organization was, if not, they were definitely not innovators. They they were very much um, stewards, right. um, and so. What I found out was being hired as the disruptor inside a stewardship is a very difficult place to be. And that kind of describes the last 20 years of the traditional media ecosystem in that cable came along. Cable, cable disrupted the traditional TV ecosystem in a very dramatic way. That's and right. Everybody kind of settled into this stewardship of hey, this is okay, we can both take subscriptions and advertising. And right. I, I kind of fell into that ecosystem at, on its rise and was very um, lucky to be a beneficiary of, from a financial standpoint, the, the rise of the cable pay TV ecosystem on a kind of like unfettered climb hockey stick up into the right. And it's kind of like a I, rocket ship, right? Yeah. I mean, I was, and I came in towards the kind of last quintile of that, but I made a lot of money. I was very lucky to be included in the club that, that grew that ecosystem. But then when I started to ask questions, hard questions about that ecosystem, like, Hey, this shit's not going to hold. Maybe we should think about what's next. I was always told like, Hey, that's cute. That's adorable. Sit down and shut up. Yeah, it's become a little bit more than cute and adorable, hasn't it? <laughs> well, and here we are. Here we are. Right. You know, in, in, in 2011, I went to my bosses and said, we should take the Sundance channel and make it a pure pay TV, pay over the top uh, subscription SVOD ecosystem because, you know, Netflix just paid us an unreasonable amount of money to license our content. I mean, it's just, it's a rat, sure. right? This is right. 2007, 2008. I said, they, they came to us, they just paid us an irrational amount of money for our streaming rights. Clearly, we're missing something. We should pivot and turn this business into a streaming service. And what I was told is, uh, you know, a nice pat on the head, you're getting paid a lot of money, shut the fuck up and go away. Mm. And that's where, 
that's where I transitioned, I think, from, hey, I love this industry. This is TV. This is this is the way things work to, hey, guys, we're going to lose this game and let's change. And it's it a tough not- position to be in, too, right? Yeah, I was not. I mean, again, I was being paid an unreasonable amount of money to be the red flag. But at the same time, it was not easy. And it's and. And you, you know, pioneers get shot and I don't mean to self aggrandize here. I really mean like, if you have a different, if you have an idea that's different from the conventional wisdom, they're going to throw shit at you. And that doesn't really matter what position you're at, whether you're Scott Galloway or myself, you're, you're, you're going to hear like, that's bullshit. Shut up, sit down. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm so glad that you have appeared on innovation and audio because all the stuff you're talking about is what happens to innovators when you know what hits the fan because they're going to challenge what is that institution and you know i mean look you're even talking about the sundance channel and stuff these guys are are at least from their public image thought of as sort of um innovators but they really are not exactly that, right? Well, but the the the, the leading, I mean, look, Bob Redford, genius, one of the great movie stars of all time, probably one of our great greatest directors of all time. Americans, yeah, yeah, and the greatest innovator in in film, festival, cultural ever. Yep, perhaps, right? No question. And yet. When I took over the Sunday channel and I said, look, this is what we need to be. And this is who we need to be. He called me a pornographer. And you had that conversation with Robert Redford. He's called you this. Yeah. He several times called me a pornographer. And that's because I made a a series of films called Indie Sex. And, and this film was not rated in the, in the, in the, in the early aughts. That was about, um, censorship in film. And, you know, so it just shows you that, you know, Netflix was the disruptor. Now they're the man. Who, are, who is Netflix right. defending this fall? They're defending the transphobe, misogynist, old, cisgendered male comic, right? right. And that, you know, so, so, so you know, the, the ecosystem is very much defined by the fact that the innovator disrupts, then the disruptor becomes the man, and then the man becomes disrupted. And that's where yep. we're at. And TikTok yep. is doing that to Netflix these days, and, and they're trying to change as a, as a result of that. But, yeah, so that's, that's really been the – that's been my since, – since that moment in time when I went to my bosses and said we should turn Sundance into a streaming service – that's really been my position in the industry is, is I'm going to be the guy that says, Hey, wait a second. I'm, I don't, I'm not going to run everything, but yo, dudes who are running everything, you might be missing something. Hey, look, look, skip, skip Dillard, who is my co-host on this. He and I have had these kind of conversations and been in these kind of conversations in the radio business for years. I had an old boss who told me, he said, I don't want to be a pioneer. They shoot pioneers. He said, I want to be the guy that when they scrape him off the dock, I put a cash register up and start ringing up sales. 
Okay, so you know what kind of environments I've been in. So listen, I have so many questions for you, Evan. I'm I'm going to try to speed through these just because yeah, you're you're very fascinating. You've got such a rich story. We're going to try a couple of these, uh, maybe okay. more than a couple. So perhaps you could talk about the importance of mentors because I think you've already kind of mentioned a little bit about that. You know, you've built great things, had great jobs, created amazing entertainment. Who do you look up to, and do you have one? mentor that you can share maybe a really quick story about how they've changed your life? I, I've spent a lot of time mentoring because to be yes. honest with you in, in the mentor, in the in media industry, I, I, I haven't had that many mentors, but um, I will I will say Josh Saipan was very instrumental in teaching me about the media industry and, and you know, he and I had a very deep conversation at one point in 2005, six, and he said to me, you know, um, if you continue to try to buck the system, you will probably feel better about yourself, but you're not going to make a lot of money. So you're at a pivotal point in your life where you have to choose between those two things. And he was coaching me towards not fucking the system because that's sure. I, to be honest, that uh, as much as I love him, that's who Josh Sapin is. And, and he's done very well by himself right. as a, as a, as a result of that. I'm just not who I am. And I, and I, I don't think that necessarily he understood what the result of that conversation was, um, that, that I said, Oh, you're absolutely right. I can't do this. Well, listen, I <laughs> and, love and, you, and, I... and, and he, and he, he, I think he was trying to convince me to stay within the ecosystem, but he and right. I remained very good friends on the other side. You know, the, the, I think the greatest piece of advice I've ever gotten from anybody was my psychiatrist, uh, in, 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 in 1990, who said to me, you know, if you try to relitigate the past, you're going to spend a lot of energy on losing battles. Look forward. And that was probably the greatest piece of advice I've ever seen. Really? It's about, about my parents at the time, but I think it's, I think it's a, a good truism for the industry. Yeah, really smart uh, observation. That's one of the smartest things somebody could say to you. Listen, uh, uh, people love to come on our live event and minimize what they've done. I, I hope you will not do that right now. <laughs> so Most people who you, know that don't know that I never do that. So. Yeah, well, well, here's the deal. You built a 50 million home network in one year. What does it take to balance that kind of activity in such a short period of time? That's not a small feat. Well, that was so. That was a that was two acquisitions plus a lot of negotiations with some of the biggest players. So you had Dish and, and Direct. So, so what you're talking about is when I was hired at Participant um, right. as the head of television, I was asked to build a television network in less than a year. And what we did was we acquired the Halogen Network and we acquired the Documentary Network from a combination of Inspiration Networks and uh, Directv and Dish, and what that process taught me was, you know, William Goldman, who, who very famously once said, nobody knows anything, um, was right. You know, we, we, we are in a, we are in a business. We don't make pants. We don't make widgets. 
we make ideas and at the end of the day the distribution of ideas is not controllable uh, but right. um there are a bunch of us who try to kind of harness that ip and harness that enthusiasm and distribute the market right. system and in building that 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 50 million home network in a in a year what i understood from a combination of talking to, to the executives at direct tv and dish and around the rest of the ecosystem is look we'll do any deal as long as you don't try to fuck us right and that is the entertainment ecosystem writ large is like be a good person don't try to find the win-win and progress can be made and right. on there is a whole i have i have a feeling that right now that ethos is being com compartmentalized into the creator economy whereas the we will scorch the earth and kill your children to get ahead is being baked into the creator economy uh a creator content economy and i very much see a split um and not not that everything in the creator economy is great and everything in the content creator economy is bad but there is very much a eat your own system being built in the kind of capitalistic corporate content creator sure. and very much uh we're all in this together let's try to make the best of this creator economy and i i i have a feeling that the last 20 years of my career has been kind of leading to this moment where this divide occurs right that's right well listen uh as i i look at you and everything that you've done and and what you're about you know talk to us about the visual that mm -hmm. i believe you have created in your LinkedIn profile about the 2021 media universe, because I think you could speak to this in a unique way. Thanks. Um, yeah. So about 18 months ago, I put out this map of the media ecosystem. And the reason I did that is I, I teach it at NYU and Fordham and I was embarking on this three hour class every Monday in Fordham a year and a half ago. And I was very concerned how I was going to fill the time. And up until that point, um, Recode had been putting this map out of who owns everything in the media universe. And I've been using that in my NYU class, which is much less time, and then screwing with it. So they would show this map, which had the kind of OG traditional media players on the map. And right. then the new death, trillion dollar Death Stars kind of like, oh, these guys too, off to the left and marginalized. And I just thought to myself, like, this is not a true representation of where the media ecosystem is going. And so I built this new map of data visualization around market capitalization and subscriber engagement. And mm -hmm. it just, I published it and direct uh, deadline Hollywood then picked it up and it just really exploded in kind of how the meme culture does. And Let me ask you, is it okay with you if we share that as a sure, part of, of this exercise yeah, today? Good, good. And I just republished a new version of it today. So, Oh, nice, nice. Well, uh, let's yeah. talk about podcasts for a minute. How important do you think podcasts will become in the future of personal entertainment? 
So I think, um, you know, uh, uh, Reese Witherspoon just beat a, built a, a, a media empire called Hello Sunshine that she sold for a billion dollars based around uh, the acquisition and, and curation of book IP, uh, uh, literature IP. And I think podcast IP is becoming equally important to that. So I've been adapting podcast IP for long form premium television for since 2008, um, which is the first time I did that with the comedy bang bang. And, um, if you look at Dr. Death and dirty John and homecoming podcasting is becoming the next great uh ip funnel for premium long form content in the new media economy um you you the the muscles that go around building a long form premium piece of audio ip are very similar to the muscles that go around building long form premium video ip and I that's, think that's I right. think why the proving ground of audio is i think you know really being adopted as the funnel for long form premium content. So I, I, I think it's, I think audio, ha, we, I think we're at the very beginning edge of the audio explosion. I, I think people are thinking it's mature. Now that Apple and Spotify has a, have added subscription, individual subscription mechanisms to their ecosystems, I think we're about to see a, yet another really big five year explosion in audio. All right, so clearly we are seeing a monumental shift in television, radio, entertainment of all kinds. Where is the best place for creators to be going in 2022? You kind of live between your life as a professor and and all of the entertainment that you're doing, which looks like the wild, wild west from my chair. Yeah, I mean, I'm producing a bunch of podcasts. I'm creating a, a comic book. Um you know, I'm just to get about to get into the NFT avatar business. Um, I think, you know, if, if I would give a piece of advice and I, and I do talk to creators all the time, there is this new burgeoning ecosystem, you know, five years, 30, 24 months ago, we were all talking about, Hey, Quibi is a new buyer. Right. And then 36 months ago, there were a lot of people in the ecosystem talking about how CISO, which was a platform I was creating was the new buyer. If you want to know who the new buyer is, if you're a content creator and you're looking for the place where the, the marketplace for your ideas will be find the greatest purchase, the creator economy, whether that is TikTok or OnlyFans or Cameo or Patreon or Fortnite or Roblox, mm -hmm. this is where you can earn a living, apply your trade, test and, and verify, AB test your creative and make a living on your way to becoming the next Avery DuVernay. I, I, I met Avery DuVernay when I was working in purchase of the media. She was a PR executive and she made this great little film about um, the predatory uh, payphone system in prisons. And now she's the biggest director on the face of the earth, right? She is the new yeah. child of and if she hadn't taken the chance to independently produce that film and get it into Sundance, there's no way she'd be who she was. Lena Dunham created a tiny little film called Tiny Furniture that got into Sundance Film Festival and made her who she is today. Ryan Coogler, if he didn't make 
uh, uh, Freefail Station, which got in the Sundance Film Festival, won the award. Like, the creator economy is the greatest indicator. Uh, fucking Quentin Tarantino and Reservoir Dogs at the Sundance Film Festival. Like, if he didn't make, the, if he didn't take the chance and make the film and put that out there and then get that into the Sundance Film, so, film Festival, we wouldn't have who he is and his Uber today. That's, That's right. Now, happening. At, that that entire ecosystem is recreating itself in the creator now, economy right now on platforms like TikTok and Fortnite and 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 Decentraland. And if you're not embracing that as an artist, you don't know what an independent film was. You have not learned the lessons of the last thirty or forty years. That's right. Now listen carefully, because just talking to you for a few minutes, this has been something that has bothered me for a long time. In the content business, if you will, it doesn't matter where you are, you always hear people say it. Content is king. It's king. And I, my question back is always this, and you are the perfect guy to ask this question. I'm just going to shut up and let you go. Is content king or is revenue king? So I'm, I'm watching The Great on Amazon now, which is about Path and the Great, who became the last great. Um, non-czar of Russia. And I think the, the analogy is really apt, which is, I think content remains king, but platform is the power behind the throne. They are the Svengali. They are the, they yes. are the, they are the, the, the Machiavelli. And if you don't, if you're a content creator, you can have great content, but if you don't understand how platforms work, and how distribution work and how access to audience you're not it doesn't really matter your your tree will not make any sound in the forest when it falls mm. all right so listen when you are dealing with change this is an important question too because people love to talk about innovation but maybe not what i'm about to say when when you're dealing with change with innovation you're not always right right in other words a lot of people see somebody who's accomplished and they say, look, he's always had it easy. He has been at the center of entertainment. Is that true? Or how do you deal with success and failure personally? Because you probably had both. What can you tell us about the value of failure? Um, so, no, I, I mean, I, I came to the media ecosystem as an outsider. I'm a cisgendered white dude, so I have great advantages and I have a secret handshake just by dint of the way I behave as a human being that it gives me certain Easter eggs that other people do not have. So I accept that and I appreciate that and I try to pay that forward. Um, but on, on the flip side, the, 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 the ecosystem pushes back against change. That's just what it does. Absolutely. It does. It has no choice. That's what it's meant to do. And the second somebody become who is a disruptor becomes part of the, the, the oligarchy of the, the ecosystem. They then fight against the change that will disrupt them. And so you know, we have choices to make as individual artists and executives in the ecosystem to embrace the change or uh, fight against that. Or, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't really understand how, why I was granted the DNA to only embrace change and not status quo. Uh, it's just who I am. 
And I don't know that it's benefited me. You know, like grand scheme of things, I've had a very good successful track record. Um, but at the same time, I probably could be in a, I could be running ABC, I could be running NBC, I could be running Fox right now if I didn't always say, you know what, this is bullshit. Um, and the choices that I made a long time ago, you have to make these personal choices, these value-based values-based choices. I made this prediction a year ago, almost exactly that values are going to be more important than bottom lines. I think the last two years have really demonstrated us that life is too short to make decisions around economic um, metrics, because at the end of the day, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and face your creator for the great beyond. And if you're not ready to answer for the decisions you made in this realm, I know it's kind of like kumbaya, but like, it's just the last two years have just been too, I think, illuminating for us to all leave behind the fact that you, you have to answer for the decisions you make on this platform. Good or bad. Well, it's, so. Look, it sounds like what you're saying is uh, what good is all the success that you can have if you can't stand yourself? Right. right. All right. So now I'm really up to a really good question. And it's the final question I have for you before we switch to our next guest and then we'll come back and ask uh, final questions. But I'm going to ask you about the crystal ball. Uh, what would your crystal ball tell us? You know, nobody can see the future, but what does your crystal ball say about the future of creating shows, the future of being an entertainer, a writer, and being in the entertainment business as we leap forward, which is really what's happening with technology? It's funny. All these innovations of the technology over the last 25 years, 20 years, let's just, just take it from the beginning of this century. The, the CEO and the coder and the innovator have been held in this, you know, elevated platform, this, this, this pinnacle, this, this pedestal for the last 20 years, Zuckerberg and Bezos and Gates at all and Musk. We're coming to the end of that. Um, and if you ask people now what they're hiring for, they're hiring for creative minds. They're not hiring for coders. They're not hiring for engineers anymore. They're hiring for the, the people who can solve the problem through creativity. And we are enter, entering what Daniel Pink once predicted a long time ago would happen, which is the celebration of the creative mind. And storytelling and narration and creativity and not necessarily invention, but projection and visualization. These are going to be the talent skills that are going to be most important for the next 25 years because tech is a commodity. It's been commoditized to the point where Mark Zuckerberg is running away from it. Whereas narration and storytelling, Squid Game, uh, uh, yes. uh, 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 the, 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 the ability to transport us and, and take us away from this world and 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 see around corners because you are a storyteller who can visualize what comes next. These and take other people around the corner, right? These are these are in the metaverse and Web three. These are going to be the most important skill sets. 
these are the leaders are going to be Marco Pavel. He was probably forty years ahead of his time. The storytell, the primacy of the storyteller is about to emerge, and I'm too old to enjoy it. Probably, uh, I will. I will watch. I will elevate it. I will promote it, and I will help pro- pro- propel it. But I am probably too late to to be the star of it. There's a next generation of storytellers who are going to. I mean, whether it's Billie Eilish or or look at what uh, Taylor Swift is doing with a reissue of her first six albums right now. That's right. It's confounding the music industry. Like the entire music industry is like, what the fuck is going on right now? And they don't know. They're just they're 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 they're, they're they don't know what to do with it. She's and taking the lead. She's taking the lead, and she's a creator. She yes. is she is the Charlie Chaplin. She is the Lillian Gish of her generation. And mm. I know that sounds hyperbolic, but the things that she's doing, the things that are happening on Roblox right now, the things that are happening on Four right, right now, if you're not leaning into the creator economy, you are missing a tremendous wave that can make you a lot of money and 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 make you involved in the next iteration of storytelling that will be very important but if you if you poo poo it if you if you diss it as kind of kids doing kids it's kind of like you being you know dismissing rock and roll in 1950 you'll be a blockbuster right yeah right all right well listen thank you evan for joining us on innovation and audio i hope you could stick around for a few minutes in case people in our audience might have a question for you If you haven't subscribed to the Encouragers Innovation and Audio podcast, you are already missing out on great content every single week. We already have a growing archives of shows for you that you won't believe or uh, just shows that can improve the value of your own career. While you are listening to this live event, please make certain that you have joined the Encouragers here on the Clubhouse app and share what we're doing with friends in radio and audio and innovation. Follow the people on the stage tonight. Look around the room for others that you can connect with. A big part of encouraging you and your audio career is helping you engage in successful networking. Subscribe to our podcast, the Encouragers Innovation and Audio Podcast. Of course, we have these great guests. You can meet them live on the Clubhouse app, or you can join them in the post, which, of course, every week ends up being the Encouragers Innovation and Audio Podcast. We also have the Encouragers, the Radio Rally Podcast. Both of these podcasts are on Apple, Spotify, Audible, and wherever you get your podcasts. We are also the home of great one-time events. We have a special live event coming up called How TV Has Been and Is Changing Forever, Thursday, December the 2nd, 2021, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. What is TV now? What do viewers expect? What should you know? You can find out with this special one-time research discovery event with Fituri Media on television. This is specifically focused on television only and is the Fituri Smith-Geiger study. Aaron Callahan will be our special guest from Fituri Media. And if you are at all interested in what could Consumers want television, changing disruption in media. You will want to hear this live event. Don't forget to follow the people on this stage. I think we've said that before. Uh, You know that we're big believers in connection, so please do that. Uh, Let's check in with Skip Dillard, who's got our great second guest on innovation and audio. Skip, who's your guest today? 
Hey, really happy to uh, welcome to the stage. And and by the way, really enjoyed Evan's comments. I mean, just some some great insight there. And um, uh, Mike Burrell, I've known him for for so many years, and uh, you know he has been. Uh, with, you know, quite a few great labels, and, and we'll talk about his connection to radio as well. Mike, how are you doing tonight, man? Skip, can you hear me? I'm doing fantastic. Honored to be Perfect. part of this, um, this podcast slash on Clubhouse. Thank you, man. Really glad to have you. And, you know, we'll start, and, and, and I know that we go all the way back to your days as a record rep coming to visit me in, in Buffalo, New York at WBLK and sleet, snow, and uh, the few days of, of warm weather we had up there. Um, how has the job of, of being in record promotions uh, changed for you as an executive as we moved from the CDs uh, to downloads to the streaming world? Well, first of all, I, I do want to address uh, your first statement in terms of when we uh, met in those very cold and frigid days in Buffalo that, okay. uh, that, we, that were amazing. And um, that being in the uh, late 90s, um, there was a it was, it was completely um, a 360 change as we move forward to today in terms of the approach to how you do uh, marketing and rail promotion. Uh, first and foremost, we can start that the number one difference, uh, which is pretty the most obvious one, is in terms of a physical format, um, which forced you sometimes to meet people, to do hand-to-hand exchanges and of music. Um, the significant difference really at this point is probably, is really, I guess you said streaming. And um, streaming, where it differs from, as you asked about so CDs, uh, to me really took a significant change in 2010. I, I, you know, there was a transition period from the late 90s where people were, where labels were testing um, going from CD to MP3. But the significant change I really, where I, where from, from my perspective was when I uh, joined J Records and I worked for Clive Davis from 2009 to 2014, um, the company was a progressive uh, think forward um, entity. And the specific record that I think illustrates the difference would have been Blame It on Alcohol by Jamie Foxx. For those reasons, everything I had been taught as a promotion director, or a national director, or a VP at, at different uh, points changed because the sales on that record, even though there was physical sales, we were now, for the first time in my career, if I remember correctly, that we were looking at master tones, downloads, ringtones. It, it, it was a whole complete shift behind that record. And having come from a, uh, I guess you say at that time, an antiquated position in terms of the old theory of emotion, from 2010 on that single, we started we started shifting in terms of how we utilized the stream um, or the download or the MP3. Um, for conventional purposes, moving forward, streaming really now is your key source of how you convince a, a station, a program director, a general manager, really, um, to what's going on with the song and supplying information. 
So currently I work at Columbia Records, right? So you have an artist like Lil Nas X, for example, who's had an amazing run as being a streaming artist that performs on radio minimally. But if I'm sitting talking to you, Skip, and you're at, you know, you're at BLS and I'm trying to get a record play, the, the, the difference is previously you come with a conversation, you say, listen, this is, these are, this is the sales on a record. Um, and you depend on the program director for the most part or the mix show guys to help tell your story about how it's performing for them. Where I'd have to speak to somebody, hey, this, I spoke to you guys here. Uh, these are our sales numbers. And then you leave it in the hands of a respected program director or, and say, hey, listen, he has to kind of feel that it works for his format. Well, today, that, that's not the case. Um, a lot of the artists that we have at Columbia Records, um, Tyler the Creator, um, Nas, Lil Nas X, Polo G, uh, Fabio, these are young rap, uh, rap artists. Uh, well, the story has been the story that I can go to a program director at a major market. I can sit there and go to him, number one, and say, listen, let me give you these consumption numbers. Let me tell you what's going on with this song at Spotify. Let me tell you how this song is shazamming in your marketplace. Let me give you M scores. Let me give you your Apple Music scores. Let me give you your SoundCloud, your YouTube. What happens when you have to be armed if you believe in the project that you're working, you have to be armed and informed with uh, with so much information that if a person is not being receptive to your project, I cannot rely on a person saying, hey, listen, I just don't think the song will perform well for my station. Well, if I'm giving you data and I'm giving you overall consumption numbers that the record is already performing in your marketplace for your core demographic, here's, here's, here's the information. So if you're telling me you can't, you know, um, have this record put into your rotation, you can't um, support this project, now you have to give me some data back why it doesn't work for you. Because I've already told you it's on Billboard is number 10. It's streaming audio is 116 million streams to date. Spotify is number five on the USA chart. Um, Apple Music is number nine. So it, it's armed you with more of a conversation. Uh, it's armed you with sufficient data that maybe stations, if they're not a progressive station, are not monitoring these platforms. They're not monitoring the, consum the consumption. And sometimes you'll have a program director, like I said, that may not that may not be the school of thought that he comes from, but he can't ignore the data. So not to be long-winded, that's really the significant change of having the CD era versus the streaming platform. Hopefully I answered the question in the right no. way. <laughs> right on point. And, and Mike, you know, I mean, uh, you're currently working Adele's uh, album, epic album, 30 at Radio. And I'm still blown away by these artists who, when they release an album, it's, it's, it's an event. You know, we think about the Beyonce's, Drake, Ed Sheeran, Kanye. What, in your opinion, creates these meteorite artists from the tons of hit makers that we have that, that, you know, deserve their just due. What, what makes the Adele's of the world, the, the it children? <laughs> what is it? I think there's one, the most important factor out of um, what you mentioned, when you mentioned the Beyonce's, the Kanye's, the Drake's and the Adele's, all of the people that you mentioned of this ilk, 
they're all cultural influence. That's really, to me, across the board, they are cultural influence. They are no longer just looked at as a release of a recording artist with their body of music. Because the audience, um, again, I, I can kind of pre I date things back to when I, see the, when I saw the change. With artists like Kanye and Drake and even Adele, their journey, their story is public. And if you predate back to 2009, I always go back to 2009. And if you, well, 2008, when you start to look at when the Whitney Houston um, TV show aired, I believe, I'm not sure if it was Lifetime or which show with VH1, yeah. but when Whitney's career was now public and you were able to come inside of her bedroom, come inside of her relationships with Bobby Brown, so, you know, and moving forward, having with Fantasia, they all had they, they all had received shows from cable networks. Where that changes, they became cultural influence, whether you like them or not. They basically were doing what a Wendy Williams was doing or was was using radio as a soundboard. So now you have Whitney and you're seeing inside of the what we call the the uh, imaginary um, line. In other words, Prior to that, you're able to control the narrative of what Whitney Houston was perceived to be the the all American um, singer, the the darling of radio, um, Clive Davis's project. But when the when when these television networks and when content, as as the gentleman that preceded me said, became king, now you're seeing inside you're seeing Whitney for what she is, who she is, and now you're able to draw opinion versus for what record labels and entertainment companies were able to put out for you to sit there and believe. Um, in addition to that, uh, what separates them is really the talent, their body of work, and more importantly, the behind the scenes is the belief of the company that a marketing and promotion rollout is worthy because the return on the investment will be you know, the numbers will be unimaginable. I mean, uh, when you think about rolling out, we rolled out Alicia Keys and we rolled, which was one uh, facet in terms of impact. But when you move forward to how we roll out a, um, an Adele, um, I, I've had the fortunate pleasure of, of a rollout of my career of watching a Michael Jackson rollout in 2000. If you remember, Skip, on the uh, Invincible Project, that's album, to have worked with you on. 50, 60 projects where you have a rollout um, of a project that maybe spends maybe a, a million dollars as a marketing budget um, to create, like you, as you were asking, to create this um, this event to watch. The, the, my my first experience was the Michael Jackson rollout of the Invincible Project to watch a project rollout with a fifty million, sixty million dollar budget to see what you can truly do when a company is behind the project. Um, sure. So to sum it up, I think um, most labels and, and Clive Davis taught me this: that when you have an artist that's a triple threat, that uh, that acts, that um, you know does music, that does Broadway shows, like when we work with Fantasia and Jennifer Hudson, those become more culturally iconic branding artists um, that sometimes supersede that, that that take a place above the label. And they become more of, of globally iconic. And I think to sum up what you're saying, um, all of these acts that you mentioned, Drake, sports ambassador for Toronto Maple for Toronto Raptors, um, brand manager, actor, uh, for you know, I mean, there's a, there's such a magnitude that these artists are able to. There's a there's a let me slow my thought down. There's such a a wide varied 
role that these artists play that when you roll out an artist like that, you're not just serving people who are, are, are music lovers. You're, you're serving people who are bloggers, who, who, who go to the blogs, people who are film, who love films, people who love sports. These people have a much more diverse platform that they, that they attract. Therefore, those are the bigger cultural influencers that you've mentioned. Sure. Ex- excellent, man. And, and, you know, Mike, since I met you, um, you were always an exceptional believer in radio. You loved hanging around the station. You'd sit in while I did afternoon sometime when you didn't have records to immediately work. And, and what make, what, what hooked you on radio, man? What makes radio so special? Um, <laughs> I think, um, the passion for radio is for me, it was pretty simple. It was, uh, it was, it was developed as a young kid. Um, and, me and you having very similar backgrounds. Um, in my house, there was only one television. You know, my grandmother dominated the television. There was no such thing as give me that remote control. <laughs> it was like, it was like you watch what I watch, and uh, yeah. I got bored with that. And having an older brother that loved music, simple and plain, we had a radio, and um, that we were going to sit there at my grandmother's uh, rocking chair and watch all my children, uh, all, uh, all in the family. Even though you know we had to watch those things if you wanted to see television. We yeah. went to the basement and we we um we fell in love with radio. And my brother was big, you know, he bullied me. He's six foot five. He's like, yo, you're gonna listen to A, B, C, and D. And um he would put on radio and it would stay on all night long. I mean, and he would go to sleep, but I wouldn't. And I discovered these stations that were in New York that were that were prevalent at the time, like the the, uh, the late seventies, the WWRLs, the WBLSs of the world. Um, but more importantly, my grandmother, who came from a who came from a civil rights background, I, I, mm-hmm. I heard these fiery voices. My first introduction to radio as a young kid was my brother listening to a guy by the name of Gary Bird. Yeah, and my brother being uh, almost like seventy years older than me, he was very you know fiery and and I and I heard Gary Bird's voice and I can clearly remember it. He had a voice that sounded like everything that that something was going on that I needed to be aware of. And from that point on, that was the introduction to radio. And then I started shifting the dial and falling in love with people like Marv Albert. And then I started emulating them and imitating them and making and recording them on my brother's cassettes, trying to get their cadence, their pitch. And, and so I said, this is what I want to do. And, uh, and then the final major influence was, was hip hop. Uh, growing up in New York, um, two in the morning on the weekend, Mr. Magic, I think, changed my perspective in terms of mm-hmm. what I wanted to do as a college student and listening okay. to magic on the radio at 2 a.m. on WHPI and having to actually record it, find a tape and whatever, um, it kind of brought it brought another word, it brought the world of hip hop into my, which was called rap music at the time, it brought it into my bedroom mm-hmm. and I would listen to the tape over and over and I can clearly, clearly define and clearly remember the cultural impact that listening to Mr. Magic had on me personally, uh, listening to a, a group that you heard of that, you know, you're in, I'm, a, I'm a Brooklyn guy, so you never, you know, you're a young Brooklyn guy. I never imagined being in the Bronx and Harlem and these things were happening and I was able to go inside that world by listening to the Mr. Magic Rap Attack and um, these cassettes. And then, as you said before, being passionate about radio, you know, I go through a, a five internships in college at five different record labels, and I'm seeing the people that I've listened to on the radio. I cannot uh, emphasize that 
how amazing that experience was that here I am as an intern. They're telling me to go, go, you're working at BLS in the internship development program. And somebody says, well, that's, that's Frankie Crocker over there. And well, that's, and you're, you're like, Oh, that's the guy, my brother. So I was totally overwhelmed. I was excited and it really drew a passion because I just, I was walking into a world that I never imagined I would be in. Yeah. No, and, and, you know, it's amazing because, I remember this must have been maybe 15 years ago. I mean, you know, you're a young up and coming record executive and you decide to purchase equipment, cameras, uh, mic setups and mixing boards. And you started documenting uh, DJs and going into radio stations, sitting down with people in ballrooms and taping to, to you know, to document our, our industry. And it's not every day you hear a record. Uh, promotion person saying, Hey, I think I'm going to do a movie on radio. Tell me a little bit about the documentary and, and what you plan to do with it and, and the process and how it's, uh, how it's coming along. Well, um, it's, it's interesting that you brought that up because you, you know, I, I, I know I, um, kind of whispered that in your ear that I was going to, when I was first starting that out. Um, one of the important things that I started noticing, and I think if I if I dated back, it would probably be to 2000, 2009, 2010. Um, again, content, everything became content. And a close friend of mine and mentor brother, his name is Ralph McDaniels um, of Video Music Box. Oh, yeah. Those who don't know, right, you know, the longest running video show in the history of television. I'm watching Ralph closely. You know, we we had already parted in, in some business ventures and I'm still and I'm still, you know, he's like, Mike, listen, you know, come into my in my world and look at what I have. And I remember it clearly he had documented everything from hip hop from 1986 to the present. He had over 200 close to 130,000 hours of content of hip hop. So when you're around somebody, you're saying, wow, I'm like, hey, Ralph, do you do you have anything on uh, Frankie Crocker? Do you have anything on um, Mr. Magic or these uh, these legendary rare podcasters? I mean, I'm always going. We're still, you know, I remember the quote that Percy Sutton, uh, the founder and creator of the inner city broadcasting group, said to me, I had the um, opportunity to sit with him. And he said that radio is the radio stations and their history and the history has not been documented properly. Um, at that point, a bell went off in my head, and I can clearly tell you that there was one particular catalyst that encouraged my vision. I didn't know Ken Webb at the time. I mean, I knew of him. Obviously, I grew up on him. Ken uh, Spiderweb, the former morning show host of WBLS, and uh, he's also on air talent at SiriusXM currently. I went to him. I knew him because we all knew him. He was the guy we woke up in the morning to. And I met him on 28th Street and 9th Avenue, and we, it was like meeting somebody who understood everything you were trying to accomplish. And I had to have a few people who were the conduits to this past, this radio that I wasn't, that I wasn't um, privy to, that I didn't know much about. And I said, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take, at the time, $20,000 was a lot of said, I'm going to get $20,000. We're going to buy cameras, microphones, and we're going to go, we're going to document the timeline and, and I remember it's funny, Skip, I said, let's document it from my perspective, which would have been the the uh, Mr. Magic's, the Red Alerts, the, the hip hop era. He said, if you're going to do a job, he said, don't tell a story halfway. He said, tell a story, you know, in, in its entirety and do not omit people that were that were risk takers and 
uh, who, who, you know, who, who put, who did the heavy lifting, so to speak. So sure. we did over uh, eight year, uh, really, you know, people have made jokes saying, Mike, it took you a long time to get it done. Uh, it took, it, we, we, we documented from the earliest uh, period that African-American broadcasters were um, on radio. And it took a, it, it took an, um, uh, a huge effort to be able to find these people, the ones that were still living, um, people close to them, finding their archives, going through museums, going to certain colleges, the Schomburg, you name it. We tried to lift, we tried to uh, unturn every stone. And we dated it back to 1928 to the first African-American broadcaster uh, that touched the airwaves, which preceded, which preceded Hal Jackson in terms of being on New York radio, which was the Tales from Harlem, which was, um, which prepared uh, April 18th on WMCA. Um, that did not precede what happened in Chicago, but in New York, that was the first known and recorded archive that we had. And we started putting together the, um, you know, the, the timeline, okay, well, who came from, who was in the twenties to the thirties, who went through civil rights, who went through the Harlem Renaissance. So we, 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 we put together an amazing project. I gave you an opportunity. I don't know if you had a chance to review it, um, to see, um, our, our attempt at what we think is a amazing project that, highlights these um, unsung heroes. And my passion for the radio goes, well, how do you not document people who impact tens of uh, hundreds, tens of millions, tens of millions, or however you want to say, over an extended period of time? And what happens by having Arbitron and certain certain, uh, rating systems, they give you rating points, but they never give you an accurate number of the impact of what a Frankie Crocker may have done. I mean, you know that it's popular. So Mm -hmm. we have to hire mathematicians to to kind of come in. You know, we we did this out of our own pocket to kind of give us a broader understanding of where they computed that these people touched during this era did a, what was the influencing being car radios and stereos that were not when, when radios are put in cars, boom boxes. That was, so it was amazing to sit there and go through that. And the reason I did it overall was I, I just felt that um, sometimes um, you have to if you're in a, if you're in a medium and you see there's a opportunity that has not or a window that has not been you know, where people have not jumped through it, you know, you have to be daring, you have to be courageous, you have to be passionate more than anything else, and you have to have a love for it. And um, I believe the theory is if you spend 10,000 hours on something, you're, you're somewhat of an expert on it. Well, I spent a lot more than 10,000 hours doing this, and quiet, I've tried to do it quietly and humbly where it didn't compete with my, my, my career in terms of um, my marketing. So what happens... If, as you well know, you know, people sometimes want to, you know, pigeonhole you to do one thing that you can't do another. You know, going back to school, going to New York Film Academy online and taking classes quietly and doing things, you know, learning the different um, platforms in terms of Final Cut, uh, taking courses on films and on films and, and taking courses on um, uh, cameras and lighting. And it was a, it was a whole production that I tried to do as quiet as possible until 2020, and um, I'm excited to see what happens in 2022 with the project. And I'm sure with people like yourself, uh, you know, working with me on these things, I think it's going to be an amazing project that kind of tells a story that most people don't know. 
Well, cool, man. Listen, Mike, I want to thank you so much. And uh, I wanted you to, you know, if you have an email address somewhere, people can keep in contact with you and keep up on the project. Cause I know it's, uh, I've watched uh, quite a bit of it this afternoon and was just, you know, I'm just blown away and you've loaned footage uh, for everything from uh, galas and tributes to memorial services over the last few years that you've shot. <laughs> I just want to yeah. tell you, I appreciate you, and, and if you can just let people know uh, how they can, can contact you and, and keep up with you. <laughs> yes, um, I can be reached at Media Makers, that's M-E-D-I-A-M-A-K-E-R-S-N-Y-C at gmail.com. Uh, my website is MediaMakersNYC.com. Uh, it will... Anything from about the film projects, the um, our content deals that we've struck with the AMC networks and We Television, everything about what we've done uh, is there. And you know, if there's any people who you know have any questions or anybody, you know, one of my biggest things that I'm, as you as you know, Skip, if there's any young people up there who have any information, have any questions about um, being participants as interns or um, contributors, um, I'm always willing to help because I come from a background where internships uh, were my enablers. So if I can help anyone and answer any questions, I'm, you know, I'm there for anyone who uh, reaches out. Well, Mike, thank you so much, man. Always uh, uh, Columbia Records, uh, national radio uh, consultant. And look, man, much continued success doing what you're doing. And if you stay around for a minute, if anybody has a question, and I'll hand it over to Mr. Ford. All right. Well, thank you, guys. Listen, uh, you know, look. You think about the rich content that appears on this channel on Clubhouse, okay? The encouragers. Everything from Skip bringing somebody amazing like Mike to the table, or I get an opportunity to bring somebody like Evan, uh, and you get a snapshot of their world, but it's not just that. We have special live events. Our next uh, special live event for sellers, sales managers, and market managers everywhere is coming. We call it the 2022 Sales Liftoff Planning Your Bigger Revenue Year. You know, some of these folks share this with them. Thursday, January 13th, 2022 at 2 p.m. Eastern, a little bit different time for us, 11 a.m. Pacific. You can join us live on the Clubhouse app on Thursday, January 13th, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific for a specifically revenue-focused event. Where It's something that we plan to do quarterly with sales managers, market managers, and local sellers. We're going to lay out planning and actionable events to amp up your Q1 revenue. But not just that, our special guest is current sales consultant, Alec Drake, former director of sales for Cumulus Media in Dallas. Our special revenue partners for the Q1 event will be Chuck Wood, who's the VP and general manager of Delta Media Corp, a multimedia company comprised of seven television and nine radio stations in Broussard, Louisiana, and Scott Howard, who is the general sales manager of WoWo, which is Federated Media in Fort Wayne, Indiana. That's Thursday. Uh, uh, well, you got the date. Uh, you got to come and check that out and be a part of that. Of course, we're going to open up the room in case you might have a question for one of our guests or somebody on our panel. Just push the button at the bottom of your iPhone or Android device to raise your hand. We'll bring you up. We do ask that you mute your microphone if we bring you up. By the way, when you enjoy when you join the encouragers, we do have people who 
5 with us. Our goal is to provide for you uh, a very interesting content, advice, career hacks to move your career forward and to encourage you. But we don't mind sharing the stage with you if you're so inclined. That's why we extend this offer to you every Wednesday. Don't feel pressure to talk. This is safe space for everyone. Also, don't forget on Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, you can join us for the radio rally right here on the encouragers this coming monday lois lewis she calls herself double l radio with k-n-i-x in phoenix she's the music director and a absolutely badass pro- uh, uh, personality who will really tune you up pretty good you come see what she's got for us we love encouraging everyone in audio and radio and we're bringing ideas solutions opportunities all throughout these businesses we appreciate you telling others about innovation in audio and look just to get us started really good i do have a question for evan and uh listen you know look you've spent substantial time energy and personal capital on pushing the entertainment community to increase opportunity access and inclusion for those who have been historically underrepresented on or behind the camera how difficult is this that's the question and also what are the keys to being successful balancing the playing field for more diverse creators? Um, thank you. Um, my great inspirational talk. Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, the, 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 the key element here is initiatives fail. They, they, when you talk about trying to create, more inclusive and diverse um, and equitable opportunities for people across the industry. If you create an initiative that is by its very definition, ephemeral, it's short term and it's the hope that kills. Um, So if you try something and it fails, it actually ultimately does more harm than good sometimes. What you need is systemic and programmatic and um, measurable and accountable metrics by which diversity, equity, and inclusion can be measured, um, which means, you know, bonusing executives. And, and you know, I just had a conversation with George Cheeks at a uh, one, one Day Immersion, which is a, a seminar we do every year. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and he was very instrumental in creating performance metrics for diversity, equity, inclusion at CBS and and Viacom. And Mm -hmm. it's about, you know, you know, you're not going to hit some metrics and you're going to fail in some metrics, but if you create systemic and measurable and accountable and programmatic and ongoing initiatives that are measured in your bonus, People can tell when you try. That's exactly right. You, so you may not hit every metric, but you'll hit some. And just like every, just like audience metrics, just like just like That's revenue right. metrics, uh, I'll tell you create the else. same you kind also, of creating side of incentives. You also get what you reward, right? right? You get the results of what you reward. If you don't reward people for doing this, guess what? They ain't going to do it. Right. Right? That's exactly right. Now, Mike, I have a question for you right quick as well. Uh, I do want to know this. I don't know if this is going to come off as odd as a question or not, but how do you create opportunities to promote your artist at different times when you may not have access to that artist directly? Because I know that happens in your business all the time because people want your artist all the time. 
can, can he do this? Can she do this? Can you do this? And sometimes you don't have access to them, right? Absolutely, 100%. We, uh, in today's market, um, sometimes I, I haven't had access to the artists where I've even had a chance to meet them. And for example, we have an artist by the name of Tyler, the creator, um, who has a huge network in terms of his social media. So by the by the time we get to the artist, the artist has already has a, has already sold has already had over 20, 50, 20 to thirty million downloads in terms of hundred million streams across the board. They're doing content deals with Queer Channel, content deals all over the place. As, they may not feel like they have to do anything with you, right? They feel that they, 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 their methodology is not that of the artists that preceded them who felt that we have to do radio promotion, that we need to speak to certain people, we, we have to deal with these influencers. They're already so ahead of the curve that they have toured, they have tours that are that are going on when you when you sign them. What happens, a lot of the artists we're finding, we're grabbing off of um, you know, like platforms like TikTok, who are already to be honest, they're already millionaires before they've even signed a deal with Sony. And they're not going to change what's worked for them just because they've gotten a deal with Sony. They see Sony as a third-party deal and as a helper as opposed to being an influencer. And the labels buying, the labels as well as, as the major labels, we're buying into influencers versus buying into artists. So you have streaming artists versus, versus recording artists. And, 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 that's really and interesting. I have it. There's artists that I barely ever had a conversation with that have sold two million albums and barely ever touched radio or any other platform that they're not familiar with. They're not paying attention to that yet because they already got so much going on. Happy Absolutely. joy. Yes. Do you have a question for somebody on our panel? And Evan, could you go ahead and, and mute your microphone if you could? Sure. Actually, um, an interesting a little backstory. Um, I met you, Mike, probably a million years ago on a flight from New York to Los Angeles. Um, my name is Happy, which is pretty rare, Happy Joy. Um, so I don't know if you recall or not. But regardless, um, we were on an extended flight and we ended up, um, that was like seven hours. And after that, we ended up going to the same hotel. So it was um, an amazing time getting to know you. You, you have a question for Mike? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty obsessed with um, Frankie Crocker and... Um, the quiet storm that's my intention the direction that i'm going so i just wanted to acknowledge you and um absolutely link for you said internship or anything of that nature i don't know what you i'm always interested in female voices and what you think about that type of perspective what what it looks like for women in radio and and um your input in that area well Again, I'll be honest. You were so detailed on the on the plane. I didn't I didn't remember it, but um, that I met you. But to answer your question in terms of women in radio, um, something um, that I was very passionate about in doing the project is that we also covered uh, women the the impact of women in radio as part of the documentary, and it dates back to the 1950s and 60s with Alma John from WWRL with her Homemakers Club, where she was really the first woman radio, um, woman, you know, woman broadcaster that had a weekly spot 
on WWRL. So, um, and all the way to the Vahagansons of the world and, and so forth. Um, what I'll do is again, I'll give you my email information, which is uh, media makers NYC at gmail.com because if you have any questions or uh, you're interested in participating in the project in any shape or form please reach out to me and uh, i'm sure we can have a conversation you know outside of this um um you know platform mike i gotta tell you you're so giving and that is a great way for anybody to reach out to him listen we do try to keep things to about an hour you can see we kind of went over tonight i do want to say a very special thanks to to both Evan and Mike, and of course, always to Skip, who's brilliant at this. And look, I, I just appreciate everybody being uh, patient and giving during this process. Of course, a special thank you goes to Joe Kelly for producing the Encouragers Innovation and Audio Podcast, which will be available in the next hour, if not less. Thank you to JustJoeProductions.com for creating our audio footprint and, of course, distributing our podcast. Please do share our podcast. The Encouragers um, Innovation in Audio Podcast and the Encouragers, the Radio Rally Podcast with others who are interested in growing their careers in audio. Both podcasts will be available on Apple, on Audible, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember this. Be kinder than you have to be. Thank you for being a part of Innovation in Audio and the Encouragers. And good night. <laughs>